Let me go far away Somewhere they won't never find me And tomorrow won't remind me of today When the city's finally sleeping And the moon looks old and gray I get on a train that's bound for Santa Fe And I'm gone And I'm done No more running, no more lying No more fat old men denying me my pay Just the moon so big and yellow It turns night right in the day Dreams come true Yeah, they do In Santa Fe Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 20th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and on the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Professor Felicia. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm very good there. So uh, I call you Professor Felicia because you do speak to uh, college uh, mm-hmm. students all around the nation. In fact, possibly even around the world. Uh, we, not only your we talk about your CCM here and here and there, but you spoke to some. Uh, was it UCLA students? Yeah, yeah, on uh, Tuesday, and they were so smart. They asked such wonderful questions. So my hats off to them. Oh, and uh, do we feel as though that after they graduate UCLA, they'll make the trek to New York, or are they going to stay and go into the dirty business of film? <laughs> they didn't tell me that. It was mostly a, a, a just a, a conversation about uh, criticism. I I got the impression they may want to be critics. Oh. Um, so, and you know, as Billy Bigelow says. Of course, it takes talent to do that well. <laughs> exactly. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, Michael. Uh, we're going to have to put a GPS on you to make sure we know your whereabouts in case uh, you disappear. Mm-hmm. What what do, you, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, just our pre-conversation off air, you know. Just uh. want to make sure that nobody in the ushers union takes you out. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Swim with the fishes. Um, I, on, a, on a more uh, positive note, I, um, uh, I should mention, I forgot to mention in our pre-conversation, that on Saturday, November 16th at oh, 5, yes. 9, 54 that, Below. I, yes. That's what I meant to mention as well. I'm so glad you're bringing it up, Michael. So tell us, what yes. will you be doing and why should we all be jealous and wanting to go? Well, you don't have to be jealous. Because That's right. We can go. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's called 54 Loves Cast Albums. That's and this right. is a, a, web, a website we have with reviews by um, about 20 writers, including Peter Felicia, Gerard Alessandrini, uh, Laura Francos, Mark Miller, David Barber, Richard Barrios, uh, Matt Koplick, and this it, it this website features thousands of reviews of hundreds of of record, recordings of 
cast albums through the through the decades and the <laughs> and the century, um, as well as soundtrack versions of musicals. And we are doing a show at Fifty Four Below, and the cast thus far we we may add one or two more is pretty amazing. Anita Gillette, Penny Fuller, mm, mm. Bill Hutton, the original Joseph, yeah. and the as in and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and Martin Vidnovic. From the 1979 Oklahoma, I thought it was really great that we could get him when the we have another production on Broadway right now, and they'll be performing and we'll be talking. And Michael Levine is our musical director, pianist, and uh, I think we're going to have a special appearance by Robbie Rosell also, who oh nice the, the big wig at Broadway Records, uh, as well as a performer himself who, who has a series at Fifty Four Below. So yeah, we can put a link in the in the show notes, and it would be great to see everybody there. Yeah, I have a link right now to 54 Loves Cast Albums, which uh, will be on, let's see, November 16th. Uh, at 9.30 At 9.30 p.m. Uh, so you can get to that. And I also put a, a link to uh, castalbumreviews.com uh, in there as well so that you can check it out. So uh, congratulations, Michael. That's awesome. Yeah, the show starts at 9.30, but the shows there are really pretty strictly limited to an hour or an hour and 15 minutes at absolute most. So uh, don't worry about getting out too late because you won't. Well, as you remember, cast albums are usually strictly limited by time as well. <laughs> Correct. Although less so now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah. yeah. Broadway Radio is brought to you today by listeners like you, patrons who support us at patreon.com slash broadwayradio. There's many different ways to support Broadway Radio, so get over to patreon.com slash broadwayradio to support us today. Okay, so, Peter... Uh, can you answer the question to feed me? <laughs> <laughs> Peter, you got a chance to see Little Shop of Horrors uh, at the West Side Theater uh, with Mr. Groff Sauce, Jonathan Groff, and Christian Borrell, um, and oh, the whole cast of talented folks. Tell me, what did you think about this uh, revival of Little Shop? Oh, it's a first-class revival, no question about that. Um, it really uh, hits the nail on the head every time it wants to, and that's uh, a very exciting thing to see. Michael Mayer is the director, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And, of course, it is a hot ticket, mostly because of Jonathan Groff. It's funny, Jonathan Groff reminded me a great deal, uh, especially in profile, of uh, Lonnie Price, um, <laughs> who, ironically enough, was offered the part way back when, and I don't know the circumstances why he didn't do it. And by the way, this is a rumor. I mean, I can't say that I was in the room where it happened when uh, he uh, was offered it or turned it down. But anyway, um, he did remind me a great deal of that. And it's really something, you know, when somebody handsome and suave and all that kind of business uh, is able to turn himself into a nerd, which, of course, is what Seymour is. And um, Jonathan Grupp succeeds wonderfully at that. Tammy Blanchard... Um, I think has a slightly more human approach than Ellen Green. The voice is not quite as, I, I hate to use the word artificial, but I will. And um, so it's a much more grounded performance, I think, than Ellen Green. Now, this is heresy because, of course, Ellen Green is beloved in this part, got to do the movie. And, of course, I think she was the real reason why it was such a quick sellout when Encores did it in the summer a couple of years ago. And um, that really surprised me that there was such a demand for Little Shop of Horrors, a show that, to me, ran the risk of being overexposed because after it became available, so many stock and amateur 
groups did it. Um, so uh, I'm I'm very surprised uh, that uh, it did so well, and here it is again. But Tammy Blanchard does a, a wonderful job. I was so impressed with Christian Bull, not only for what he did, but for taking the role. I once heard an actor, I'm not going to give his name, saying I would never take a part where I had to double um, or triple or quadruple um, and play a million roles. Um, I think it's demeaning. I, I am a professional. Uh, I want to play one role. I want one name next to mine in the playbill. Um, this is a person who's won a Tony, too. Um, so, But Christian Paul's won, too. And yet he's willing to take on a number of roles. Of course, his big role is Oren uh, Scrivello, the dentist, uh, who's quite sadistic and um, and pays the price for that. So... Um, he's wonderful in that role. He's got a very funny um, wig on that um, I think will amuse you. But then again, there he is, um, even in drag at one point. And I thought he really was a terrific sport about it and really threw himself into it every step of the way. Uh, the one problem with Little Shop of Horrors, and I wonder if this is going to boomerang on them, um, and I didn't see it at City Center last year, but there's so much talk about abuse of women in this show um, that um, I, I, I think it's pretty uncomfortable. I, I, too bad Howard Ashman isn't still around for a number of reasons, but one here. I wonder if he would have thought that and um, not have it a situation where a woman is content to be abused by uh, a man and thinks it she deserves it uh, because she isn't um, born to uh, um, the upper high life, uh, that she really feels she's down and out. She has a terrible self-image, and as a result, she feels she deserves to be beaten. And I think that's a real problem here. And I have to say that I did notice that um, all these, and I put quotation marks around the word jokes, um, about this were met with stony silence from the crowd that um, I was with. So so I do think that's something that um, would be best off um, – soften but again um, I guess that's not going to happen and I guess Little Shop will always have that but anyway great fun to hear Alan Macon's music again uh, he really uh, gets that 50s um, late 50s early 60s sensibility uh, down pat of course Howard Ashman was um, a master lyricist and you know uh, as Stephen Schwartz says in um, Pippin, um, it's smarter to be lucky than it's lucky to be smart. Um, one of the reasons this show happened way back when was because Howard Ashman had worked with the people on Sesame Street and um, knew the puppet world and said, oh, wow, when he watched the, the movie um, of The Little Shop of Horrors, as, it, as the movie is called, um, that he said, oh, wow, we can get so-and-so, whoever it was, to do the puppet. This will be great. So, um, you know, it, it, it all fell together very well, as so many shows do. Well, so few shows do, really, I guess I should say. But so many hits do. Um, they come together very quickly. Jack O'Brien says um, that all the time, that the real um, smash hits seem to come together in no time at all, comparatively speaking. So um, so Little Shop had a lot going for it, but of course it wouldn't have done as well if it didn't have so many talented people working on it. And for that matter, what we also have to remember is Little Shop is responsible for a lot of these other musicals that, um, like Evil Dead, you know, that type of musical, um, which aren't nearly as good, all those other shows that were uh, imitations of the So Bad It's Good uh, genre. And um, so Little Shop bears that responsibility, but even so, it had no idea it was going to do that. And uh, we have to appreciate it for what it is. And it really is a quality work in a quality production at the West Side Theater. I haven't seen this one yet, but I can't wait. I'm going today. 
And, you know, on that last note that you mentioned, there was something I read that David Rooney wrote in The Hollywood Reporter about Mencken and Ashman, which is so true. I wrote this down. Uh, quote, the songsmiths cannot be given enough credit for their role in the rebirth of the mo- of the movie musical with Disney's The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and mm-hmm. their influence spilled over into the Broadway musical, helping to start the gradual repopularization of an entertainment genre that had been stuck for decades in uncool prison. The superb craftsmanship of this show demonstrates why they made such a winning pair. And, you know, that is so, so true. Even those of us who adore musicals, I think, would have to admit that there was a while there uh, when they really seemed... Uh, if not uncool, certainly not not part of the mainstream anymore and really kind of marginalized. I, I think it's because they stopped making movie musicals, essentially, um, for for decades. I mean, there was an occasional one, but but they were very, very rare. And actually, the movie A Little Shop was very influential in that regard, coming out at a time when there were very few others. So I think it, I, I think it is true. Uh, I mean, Mankin and Ashman may not have been the only uh, people. They may, have, may not have been solely responsible for the rebirth. But I do think it is true that you, you cannot give them a, a, a more – you cannot overestimate what they did in that regard. It's, it's really extraordinary. And um, here we go again with the mm. thing that I, I seem to mention every week. But notice that um, Howard Ashman was a lyricist who rhymed correctly. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the success of Little Shop, too, because yes. I truly believe that the audience needs to hear lyrics and rhymes make it easier to understand what's being said. Yep. So as a result, you know, he did quality work. And um, and I wish that all those other musicals would have taken that into consideration. Um, imitation, of course, is the highest form of flattery, we're told. Well, Let's see lyricists imitate and uh, do correct rhymes. That's what I'd like to see them imitate. So I saw a little shop a few weeks ago. Uh, I was as soon as I had heard about um, uh, little shop coming back to the tiny west uh, <laughs> west thing um, theater. Uh, I was very concerned that uh, the, the West Side Theater wouldn't be able to uh, give us enough tickets for bringing our, you know, family and things like that. And my daughter had to see Jonathan Groff. So Uh um, I bought tickets as soon as it was announced. Uh, And we took the entire family to go see it. We all had a really wonderful time. Mm -hmm. And something about the, you were talking about uh, Christian Borle and uh, Groff doing uh, these type of roles at a a, uh, small theater. Uh, the, The thing that I felt like... Uh, was happening there was that er- er- everybody involved in this project looked like they were having such a great time on stage that you know I, I sort of feel like they're they're like I would do this if I were not being paid and this is so great um, <laughs> being paid to have all this fun up here singing this these great this great music and a great show a lot of fun. Uh, and and it, I think it really it spilled over into the audience. At least uh, I saw a very early preview, and those are usually friends and family and f- super fans of a, of a show or or of, or of the actors on stage. Um, but the audience had a great time seeing this, and it's playing a limited run through January nineteenth. Um, and word is from the uh, the producers that it is sold out. 
uh, there was an interview with Tom Curtis, one of the lead producers for this, mm. and they asked him if they're going to transfer it to Broadway, and he says, absolutely not. It is not transferring to Broadway. There's no plans, no discussions to transfer to Broadway. But he didn't say that it might not be extended. Right. So we have to see. One has to wonder if that decision was made uh, because, of course, there was a Broadway revival some years ago that did not do well. Mm. And um, that may be uh, what they're really thinking of. The question really becomes, had there been no Broadway revival some years back, would they have then thought about bringing it to Broadway? Mm. That's something we'll never know. But anyway, it is – um, what happened in the in the Broadway revival? Did you see that? And what was yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Well, not only um, was the revival unsuccessful, but it originally started out um, with uh, different people in it, and um, and different a different director in Florida, I believe, and uh, really had some tough times there. And so it was retooled for Broadway, but even so, it, it, it didn't do well. I do know that Howard Ashman said way back when, this is not a Broadway show. We are staying at the Orpheum Theater. Um, um, I do know he made that statement and uh, never wanted it as a Broadway show. But um, then he died, of course, and uh, as a result, um, his wishes were not uh, taken into consideration. But yeah, um, I, I do think it's very much at home where it is right now uh for those who know the west side complex it's in the upstairs theater mm. yeah yeah you know what you said again i haven't seen it yet i'm going today uh james but what you said about the feel that everyone is just having a ball and loving what they're doing maybe that stems from the genesis of it because uh jonathan recently gave two major interviews that i saw he really is i i think he's really a bona fide star now and there was a major interview in new york magazine and then also one in the New York Times. And I forget which one it was, but he said it started um, – Michael Mayer, of course, they worked together on Spring Awakening, uh, that which was Jonathan's first breakout role. And uh, I guess Michael had invited Jonathan to see the production of Rigoletto – uh, at the Met that uh, that M- Michael directed, and they went to see it just as a, you know, like as a social night, I guess. And during that, at some point, Michael said, "You know, I had this idea for something we might do," <laughs> and they both just loved the idea so much, and and so maybe that uh, that has been infectious in the company and they hired a bunch of other people who feel the same way about it. But it it must be so, so wonderful to do something in a, in a, in an intimate situation like that and not have the focus be on, uh, on the commercial. I mean, uh, with the help of, you know, current ticket prices and and premium tickets, et cetera, I imagine that they might uh, recoup their investment, but it would probably be, very difficult to make any kind of a significant profit unless they keep extending, you know, for a really long time. So, uh, so money is not the primary motivation is what I'm saying. It's just people wanting to do something they love, getting a chance at a show that so many people love that is, is considered so iconic and so influential. And when something starts from an impetus like that, that's really so pure and wonderful, I think that that, that really is, can be very infectious and the audience can sense it. Broadway Radio would like to thank our sponsor, Slave Play. Slave Play is the new American play everyone is talking about, and due to phenomenal demand, this satirical look at race, sex, and power has been extended through January 19th. Written by Jeremy O'Harris and directed by Robert O'Hara, 
Jesse Green of the New York Times calls it one of the best and most provocative new works to show up on Broadway in years. And Aisha Harris adds that Slave Play reimagines the possibilities of what theater can give us. Don't miss the theatrical event of the year. Visit slaveplay.com for tickets. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway Radio. Okay, well, let's move forward into our next uh, show with um, Linda Vista. We talked about last week, but Michael got a chance to see it this week. So, Michael, what have you got to say about Linda Vista? Yeah, I don't have too much to add to what you guys said, but there was something interesting I noticed um, that I don't know if either of you noticed uh, because I uh, saw it after speaking to to you folks and uh, – hearing what you had to say specifically about uh, the behavior of the central character, Wheeler. Uh, and I had all, all certainly heard from many other people what a reprehensible person he is. So I, I, I had heard that several times going in. And um, I don't again, I don't know if you can remember or, or if you agree with me, but what I was struck by was that during the first act of the show, I actually did not feel that at all. Um, I, the the act ended, and I turned to my friend and said, "You know, I had heard what a what a horrible, horrible person this guy is supposed to be, but I don't think so. He seems, you know, he's a little sarcastic, <laughs> uh, but he seems he's so funny and so smart. Um, and yes, he's you know he complains about various things, and but he does it in such an enjoyable way that." I, you know, I find him really, really good company, and that actually explains why, uh, why his friends stick around as well. So I was a little um, surprised by that. But then, <laughs> Act mm-hmm. Two, Act Two started, mm-hmm. and then, and then actually, even the first scene of Act Two, as I recall, Wheeler was still, you know, fine. He was just some guy, you know, r- just you know, some really funny. Uh, not charming in a warm way, but 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 good company because he's so hilarious uh, and just you know quick with a quip and and very nice to be around. But then towards the end of the first scene <laughs> of Act Two, uh, you know he starts to behave very very badly, and I think that. Uh, I'm sure that the playwright Tracy Letts did that absolutely on purpose uh, to have the audience kind of bond with this guy and then see uh, what a mess he is. Uh, and he he really does start to do some some really, really horrible, awful, awful things. Um, I've heard him described as a misogynist, and uh, I, I guess there's truth in that. But I would say more generally – uh, is he's really more of a misanthrope. Um, he he does a lot of uh, a lot of complaining and bitching about all kinds of people and things. And I and in fact, I think the use the word misanthrope is used in the play by someone else and aimed at him. So I think that that's uh, more general. Uh, he has a problem with people in general. Um, not not just women, although he treat you know we see him treat uh, one woman in particular so badly that that's why we eventually come to, if not hate him, uh, really we lose our desire to be around him anymore, and that's what lets us showing. I also think Peter that uh, you know I mean I suppose um, you're you're absolutely right that 
uh, we're supposed to think that his divorce um, mm -hmm. is is largely responsible for him being like this. But but then of course it becomes a chicken or the or or the egg thing. Is he getting divorced? Because mm -hmm. he's That's such fair. a horrible person, sure. or or you know, or vice versa, and it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I suppose it's just I I, I found it very very uh, entertaining and gripping throughout. I was very pleased with the writing, and I because I had loved August Osage County, but since then had seen uh, two or three other plays by Tracy Letts that I thought were far inferior to that. And I was almost maybe wondering and fearing if he was going to be a one hit wonder. But uh, I, so that's one reason why I'm so happy to see this. I thought it was very, very well written, very well directed by Dexter Bullard and incredibly well acted by the entire company, especially this um, guy who plays Wheeler, Ian Barford, who doesn't that sound like such a British name? Ian, ba <laughs> yes, Ian <right>. Barford, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, if I didn't actually I don't think he's British <laughs> from reading his bio, uh, but uh, so uh, he uh, he really got the cadences of the speech. And, and I, I thought he was fantastic. And I think he'll be remembered when awards time comes around. Okay, so that is uh, Linda Vista at the Hayes, uh, playing through November 10th, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. This episode of This Week on Broadway is being supported by Darren Brown's Secret. Darren Brown's Secret is now on Broadway for a strictly limited engagement. Audiences and critics are blown away by this master of psychological illusion. The New York Times says you'll be brainwashed into joy. Deadline calls it stunning, captivating, thoroughly entertaining from start to finish. The Daily Beast says you'll be flummoxed, amazed, floored, fascinated, freaked out, charmed, and wonderstruck. Experience Darren Brown's secret for yourself now at the Court Theater through January 4th. Get tickets at DarrenBrownSecret.com. Please support the advertisers who support Broadway Radio. Peter, you got down to uh, Lafayette Street uh, to see Soft Power at the Public. So tell us about this new, we're calling it a musical or a play by Denry, Den, David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori? In a way, um, it reminded me of Lady in the Dark in the sense that Lady in the Dark was uh, a musical that had long scenes without music and then suddenly a lot of music and then long scenes without music. Uh, it doesn't quite fit that schematic, but um, uh, I think it may set the record for the show that takes the longest to have an opening number. And the first scene uh, is David Henry Wang, though he, whenever he writes about himself, he always calls himself DHH. I think this is the third time he's done it. Um, um, so anyway, he's a writer and he's over in, in China and they're interested in doing a Broadway musical, but with a Chinese sensibility. It's um, it's about uh, a couple that has fallen out of love and um, at the end of the show, they uh, mend fences and they decide to stay together. And David Henry Wang said, oh, wouldn't it be more interesting if indeed um, they split at the end um, and they both walk off happily? And I thought... <laughs> this is what so many people have said about Follies. But anyway, um, so uh, there's a lot of references to Broadway shows um, in terms of the way it looks, uh, the way it feels. Um, the King and I is mentioned very specifically, but there's also a Shall We Dance Dance. Um, there's a music band homage that's sort of like You Got Trouble. 
there's a dream ballet that looks very much like Agnes DeMille's work in Oklahoma. So there's a lot of um, Broadway stuff here, and Janine Tesori has written um, appropriately uh, Broadway stuff here, which is um, really quite nice to hear. I have never seen so expensive-looking an off-Broadway production Good Lord, if you're into scenery, if you're into that, if you feel like you have to get your money's worth by seeing what they put on stage, this is the show. Um, now, I don't mean to, um, I mean, it just occurred to me to say that, that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of good things in this show. And even though it references, as I say, those other musicals, a line from Hello, Dolly, um, came up uh, in my mind, and that is, it's a little lumpy, but it rings. I like this show. I liked it a lot. But it has been criticized because it tries to do too many things. First off, there's that story with David Henry Wang trying to write a musical uh, that will please Chinese audiences and having a tough time with it. There's also, unfortunately, um, the story of David Henry Wang being attacked and almost dying. Um, I don't, when I said unfortunately, I don't mean it's unfortunate this is in the show. I meant that, of course, in real life, it was terrible that this had happened, that he came very close to dying because he was slashed in the back of the neck. And um, that's not a good place to be slashed. And luckily, he was only two blocks from a hospital and he got there. So, what you have, and I think a lot of people have missed this when, in the reviews I've read, um, is he's essentially having a fever dream. And um, it's what he's thinking while he's. Um, uh, uh, under medication and hallucinating and all that. So, I mean, in a way, he gets a free pass there because anything can happen when you're in a situation like that, when when you, you're drugged and your mind just wanders and what have you. So, um, so I bought that. There's also a lot of talk about the election of 2016. And um, there's no question that um, DHH is on Hillary Clinton's side. The funny thing is um, <laughs> that um, the actress who is playing um, Hillary Clinton, Elise Allen Lewis is her name. Frankly, to me, looks much more like Chelsea Clinton, but that's another story. Also, there's uh, she shows up in the in the first scene as an assistant to the big uh, executive who wants the uh, Chinese version of a Broadway musical, and it turns out that they're close to having an affair. I don't think that should have been in the show, and I do think it was a mistake to introduce her there because if she had come out. Um, as Hillary Clinton, as she does mm, about a half hour later, it, it would have gotten um, a much more, oh, look at that. Um, there is an analogy, at least with Chelsea, and uh, it would have been a much more strong entrance. But um, they gave her away, so to speak, too early in the show. So um, what I liked most about it, though, was that it was intelligent and um, it wasn't it was silly when it wanted to be. But it really had a lot of important p points to make certainly about the political election. And indeed, if you don't think that this is strange enough, Act 2 takes place in 2066. And we learn that uh, America has become a second-rate power during that period of time. And there's a very condescending panel uh, talking about America and what happened to it as a result of what happened in 2016 and beyond. And um, now some may say this is preaching to the choir. Um, and whenever somebody brings up that uh, expression, preaching to the choir, I always say, but we don't know that the only people listening belong to the choir. It's entirely possible that there are people who don't 
have this political feeling that um, is being expressed, and they may think about things in a different way. So I am not necessarily against um, that so-called problem of preaching to the choir. I think it's worthwhile to at least get the ideas out there and um, see what happens there. So um, uh, (laughs) I won't be surprised if indeed it drives you crazy in in many instances um, when you say, wait, 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 where, where are we now? I can understand that. Truly. Um, But I do think it's such an ambitious effort that it really deserves our attention. And sometimes it's just plain fun. There's a song involving teaching language. um, And, you know, that's in the great Broadway tradition, too, um, with Happy to Make Your Acquaintance from the Most Happy Feller. And in the movie uh, tradition, musical movie tradition, too, when you think of um, the French lesson in the Good News movie. So um, so all in all, um, I found it really, really riveting. And um, I do believe that anybody who is discouraged by some bad reviews uh, should think twice. Uh, I have a feeling they thought this was going to move because to put so much money behind it. Whoa. Go and see if you disagree with me. That is the most ornate, elaborate off-Broadway musical you have ever, ever, ever seen. I read that it. I'm not sure if you mentioned this. It uh, that it has a 22 piece orchestra. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think it's 20 actually, but nevertheless, uh, it might be 22. I counted 20. I, I purposely counted. Yeah, even that, even <laughs> that. Can you imagine? I mean, Mamma Mia, I think had nine in the pit, maybe 11. <laughs> you know, that was the Broadway show, and here we are, you know, at the small Newman Theater, and look what's going on. So, um, so yeah, that too. Good for you, Michael. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, perhaps uh, somebody has decided that an off-Broadway show is going to try to take the Drama Desk Award for those categories that's usually way outspent. Yes, uh, I do think that's a very good point. Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. This episode is being brought to you by ShowTickets.com. ShowTickets.com is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, and Beautiful the Carol King Musical, and 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content and stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guys, itineraries, theater news, and more. ShowTickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. ShowTickets.com. Okay, so next up, Michael, a beloved favorite, has returned. Forbidden Broadway is uh, now back on the board. So tell us about the newest incarnation of this. It's back. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, many, many, many fans will be glad to hear that Forbidden Broadway is back where it started uh, at the Triad, although when it started there, it was not called the Triad. It was called Paulson's or Paulson's up on 72nd Street, West 72nd. And this is called Forbidden Broadway, The Next Generation. Uh, the cast, let me name them right, right off the bat because they're so phenomenal. Chris Collins, Pisano, Emmanuel Houston, Aileen Mayagotia, Catherine Penny, Jenny Lee Stern, and Joshua Turchin, or Turkin, T-U-R-C-H-I-N, uh, who I, uh, I believe is the first child ever to be in a Forbidden Broadway edition. He, uh, uh, I don't know, he looks like he's maybe like 13 or 14. Um, 
And he was just really great. Uh, Gerard Alessandrini, the creator, uh, certainly realized that uh, Broadway is uh, very much aimed towards uh-huh. a youth market nowadays, at least much of Broadway is. And, and uh, he ran with that concept and got this very talented young man to join the rest of the adults in this very, very, very clever edition of Forbidden Broadway. Uh, we have uh, Fred Barton back at the piano. And um, one of the most noteworthy aspects of this edition is that is it, it is, I double-checked, it's the first edition of Forbidden Broadway in this in New York anyway, with uh, with head mics, body mics instead of standing mics, uh, f- you know, uh, mics in, mm-hmm. in stands. Uh, for years, the uh, Forbidden Broadway was done with with standing mics, and I had asked Gerard about that many times, and he said that they felt that because there were so many costume and wig changes, that it would have been it would have uh, been impossible, sure. yeah, yeah, to have head mics. But I um, don't know if they. I guess maybe technology has has improved, and and maybe those things are are more easily removed and, and reinstalled now. Uh, they're probably also smaller. Uh, so they, anyway, they've worked their way around it. And what that allows is, um, much more extensive, uh, musical staging and choreography, uh, done in this case by Jerry McIntyre. Uh, there's, there's much more of that than in any other, staging of Forbidden Broadway that I've ever seen. Uh, they did have head mics in Spamilton uh, uh, for those who saw that show. So uh, I do remember that, but that wasn't strictly uh, technically an edition of Forbidden Broadway. So this is kind of, kind of a, a first and, and really, it really adds to the show, I think. And it, and did not um, impact negatively on understanding the lyrics uh, that was something I, I know that Gerard was was very fearful of for years, and that's why they avoided it. But it turned out to be fine. Actually, if anything, my my one little cavil about this show is that I, for me, it was a little too loud. But every almost every musical I see is a little too loud. So I, I just maybe that's me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but really, it's 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 so great. Um, it, it starts with a fabulous opening number and you know what they say uh when you start out with a great opening number that you're you, you know you're halfway there in this case it's a parody of um the, of the opening of a, a chorus line and it's called god i want to see it 2019 and it's a bunch of uh theater goers you know tourists uh, people in new york who are discussing what you know what's hot and what they want to see and then the shows that are the really hard tickets and then they're they're trying to scramble for. Um, let's see. I'll just I'll just run down the list. I won't read the whole program, but um, there's a Hades Town number. There's a Moulin Rouge number called Moulin Rude. <laughs> um, then there's a Evan Hansen number called Evan Has Been uh, that features the aforementioned Joshua Turchin or Turkin. Uh, let's see. We oh, this is very up to date. Um, Gerard has always been great about that in 
uh, adding stuff that's that's very au courant and and very very recent. We have a Fosse Verdon number here, mm. uh, uh, and we also have an Ain't Too Proud number. Oh, and we also have uh, <laughs> Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland. So that's how up to date it is. Mm. Plus, we have Fiddler in Yiddish uh, that comes in for for uh, a little parody. Um, the Ferryman is a non musical. That is parodied in this production. Uh, there's a number done by <laughs> by uh, um, uh, Chris and Emmanuel playing Lin Manuel Miranda and Billy Porter, which was one of the absolute highlights. Um, there's a Mary. Uh, well, it's a number that ha- fe- features Mary Poppins as a character, and the song that's that they use is a song from Mary Poppins Returns. Uh, here, it's called "The Place Where the Lost Shows Go." Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a um, oh, a Harry Potter uh, is another non-musical that's parodied, um, and there oh uh, the I would say maybe the absolute highlight of the show is. It's not Oklahoma, but woke Oklahoma. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and uh, as a non-fan of the current production, I I think I screamed um, <laughs> in laughter more during that than 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 any segment, any other segment in the whole show. So I would highly recommend uh, a visit to Forbidden Broadway up at the Triad. It's it's as good as ever. I would say this production. So I'm noticing in the Forbidden Broadway information that the producer list includes David Zippel. Yes, David has um, been involved uh, with Gerard uh, as a producer for uh, several shows, that he, uh, including Spamilton. Oh, and by the way, um, another thing that this show does uh, that is so smart and Gerard has done in se- several others is that it ends on a, um, you know, after all the snark and sarcasm and hilarity, it ends on a kind of a touching um, note with a tribute to, to Hal Prince. Ah. Uh, Hal Prince as the starkeeper in Carousel. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can uh, we can think of past editions. There was one where Sondheim uh, came out at the end, and, and the, that ended with a tribute to him, basically. So, you know, it's important to have a love of the art form at the basis of all the all the jokes and all the snark and and so smart of of Gerard and, and everyone else involved to realize that. All right. So that is uh Forbidden Broadway the Next Generation, which as a Star Trek fan I always think of a <laughs> Star Trek is there any Star Trek references in there or is Venn diagram of Broadway and Star Trek is not very yeah, overlapping. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't think so, but uh but I assume that was the reference. So, uh, all right, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It is scheduled through November 30th, so uh, check it out sooner than later. You don't want to get locked out, and the uh, tryout theater is not a huge room. So uh, no. you got to uh, get your tickets now before the season rolls around. Next up, we have um, Is This a Room at the Vineyard Theater? Peter got down to see that at the Vineyard, so tell us about this play. I'm not sure we can call it a play. Um, it's really a transcript, seriously. Uh, true, Tina Satter found, uh, found it. Uh, she conceived the idea, and it really is a real-life incident. And it, uh, ostensibly, we're told, does not have one word that did not happen on June 3rd, 2017, when three FBI agents showed up 
at the house of a woman named Reality Winner. Um, to me, that sounds like a racehorse, but nevertheless, Reality Winner seems to be her real name. And they are there to uh, investigate the possibility that she let out some classified information that suggested that there was some sort of collusion between Russia and uh, the Republicans to get Donald Trump elected. So this was um, the early stages of this investigation when um, she lets people know what was going on. And um, what is so so galvanizing about this event this evening, which is only 70 minutes long, is the attitudes that you see from Agent Garrick and Agent Taylor. Um, Agent Garrick is played by Pete Simpson and Agent Taylor by T.L. Thompson. And you know, of course, good cop, bad cop. I mean, we've we've seen that uh, configuration so many times over the years. In In a strange way, they both try to be good cops at times and they both try to be bad cops at times though I will say that Agent Garrick seems to be um, the one who mostly plays the good cop and they make it seem like nothing at all is really the problem there is no question that they establish that you are innocent till you are proved guilty they believe she's guilty and you can tell that in the subtext and it's so many times she is so threatened simply because Agent Taylor, not saying a word, just walks up to her and is like two inches away from her face, face to face with her, just looking at her, not saying anything, while indeed Agent Garrick is doing most of the talking and occasionally making a joke uh, to make it seem like things aren't serious um, and not, there's nothing to worry about. This is routine. You know, We just have to do this, but clearly there's nothing wrong. And when they're not getting the answers to the questions that they want about halfway through the transcript slash play, we know more than we've been letting on they actually say and that's when it really gets serious and watching uh, Emily Davis playing reality winner uh, going from um, let me act like there's nothing wrong to oh my god they know about that huh oh they know about that too huh uh oh um, mm, yeah, and <sighs> watching her go through this is really really something so uh, also in the cast is Becca Blackwell, who is simply um, really essentially the grunt who has to go in and, and search things. There are a million questions about searching the house. Is there a weapon in there? Is there a weapon in the bathroom? Is there anything that could be a weapon? All that type of questioning. So um, it, it, they're doing their job, of course. And um, <laughs> essentially, they want the nation's best interests at heart. But some of us may feel that uh, they essentially don't have the best nation's best interests at heart, but uh, they do have to do their job. This is what they have to do. And what happens to reality winner, in case you don't know, and you might, you might, um, is certainly explained afterward um, in a piece of paper you pick up on the way out, uh, which also gives a link to a website that really goes into detail as to what happened to reality winner. But um, you may be a slightly bit surprised um, at what happens to her when you uh, do the research. Um, but while you are there, it really is very scary because, of course, in situations like this and plays like this, we always – well, many of us, I can't say we always, but many of us do think, what if this happened to me? 
you know, what if two guys just showed up at my house and um, started asking questions? Now, of course, as I say, she was quote unquote guilty of doing this, but, but we all know that so many people are dragged into investigations who really are completely innocent, but they would just, they work in the same building or what have you. So, um, it's, it's not a show for paranoiacs to, uh, really enjoy, but, uh, if you can get through it, it, and again, 70 minutes, it's really, really a fascinating experience, especially when you realize it ain't a play. Um, when the time comes for, for nominations, I mean, I'm going to suggest to the drama desk that this really be put in the unique theatrical experience category, because I don't think you can really put in his best play, um, even though it plays as a play. But given that it's it wasn't written as a play, I think it belongs in that category. So we'll see if my six brother and sister wizards agree with me, but um, that's where I'd put it. But I'd like to see it get some recognition because it really is quite an event. All right. So that is, is this a room at the vineyard? It's playing through November 10th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you moved from Russia to Prussia. Mm-hmm. As you uh, got out to West Orange, New Jersey, to the Luna Theater to see Mrs. Stern wanders through a Prussian library. Yes, Jenny uh, Lynn Bader has written a play that is very cleverly titled. Um, it, it may seem to be an unwieldy title, but it's a very clever title because it deals with somebody that we have heard of. We just don't know her by um, Mrs. Stern, but she's a reasonably famous writer. And um, this is not unlike, um, is there a room? Uh, Is this a room? Because what is happening is it's 1933 uh, and we're in Berlin and a Nazi officer has taken um, in Mrs. Stern to ask a whole bunch of questions. And she's not going to be there just for a couple of hours, believe me. And um, the fact that she wanders the Prussian State Library just looking around at books, that's all. Oh, that book looks interesting. Wow. Hmm. Uh, Gee, that one does too. Gets her in trouble because according to the Nazis, some of those books she shouldn't be looking at. They contain information that may be antithetical to the Nazi party. Wow. I mean, think about it. You're just going to a library and looking around. You can't even have curiosity anymore. Good Lord. How awful. And Juliana Carr is quite wonderful as Mrs. Stern. Quite wonderful. And you know, every now and then she's able to flash a smile. Not often, of course, not under these circumstances, But she is such a beautiful woman when she flashes that smile. And of course, 98% of the time, she looks pretty grim. And why wouldn't she? Because she's being barraged with questions by this uh, Nazi. Uh, And it's really quite sad, quite sad indeed, to see uh, somebody so harassed who really had (laughs) nothing to do with anything. Not only that, They take in her mother, too. We don't see her. She's in a different cell. And we do see that maybe, as time goes on, even the Nazi, well, may have more sympathy for her 
than perhaps Adolf Hitler would have liked. That, um, and of course, he's super polite, super polite, um, and um, really makes sure that he says please all the time. You know, and again, trying to put her as much as ease as possible, not because he cares about her, but because he feels that he has a better chance of getting information from her. I do wish um, the direct uh, direction by Ari uh, Keith uh, could have been a little more taut. I would have liked to have seen uh, the tension build and build and build, and uh, that didn't quite happen. Still, this is a very worthy play, and I won't be surprised if it makes the leap to New York City, where I think it really does belong. And um, when you go, see if you can guess who Mrs. Stern is um, in um, a name that I think you will recognize. But a very good world premiere from Jenny Lynn Bader. Okay. And that also will be running through November 10th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes so you can get out to Luna Stage check it out. Yeah, it's in West Orange, New Jersey, by the way. I, sh- I should have made that clear. Uh, West Orange, which isn't that hard to get to. So uh, make it happen. Nice restaurants around there, too. <laughs> Okay, so Michael, you got over to the New York Pops to see uh, One Night Only concert with Jeremy Jordan. That must have been a lot of fun. Tell us about it. Yes, Friday the 18th, the New York Pops, their special guest was Jeremy Jordan, who I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. And I... I've been a fan of Jeremy's ever since I happened to stumble upon him years ago in a production of The Little Dog Laughed in, I think it was Hartford, Connecticut, uh, one of his first ever things and obviously not a musical. And they're like, oh, you know, who's this guy? And then a few years later, he uh, he really exploded and it turned out that he has a phenomenal, phenomenal singing voice. Um, he, It's interesting. He is, I guess, an example uh, of someone who really has become quite a name with a with a huge fan base, despite not being really a, a movie or a TV star. Uh, although he has, uh, it seems like a lot of his fan base comes from the short lived TV show Smash, which uh, I I thought was ludicrous in terms of the writing so i stopped watching it early on but of course it had a lot of great people involved in terms of the uh musical and acting talent and in in many other areas so um that show may not have had enough viewers to keep it going but uh but whatever fan base it did have was apparently very rabid and they all love jeremy jordan and it's easy to understand why um he uh the program included uh, – I, I got to hear him sing Something's Coming from West Side Story, which I had heard him do before. Actually, not that long ago, um, Jeremy was in one of those uh, one of those Q&A and performance events that Seth Rudetsky does at Town Hall. Um, so that – I had heard him do it then, but that was just with piano. This was with full orchestra, uh, although not the original orchestration, and I, I'm not sure why we needed a new orchestration if something's coming. Uh, but uh, it was fine. It, it didn't ruin the song or anything like that. And he sang it so beautifully. Jeremy, I've told this story before, he did play Tony – 
on Broadway as an alternate in the in the last Broadway revival. And uh, I actually had it. Somebody gave me a ticket one night to see him in it, but I could not go because it was on four hours notice and I had another show that night. So I always regretted that missing him in it. Uh, and I'm glad that I've at least got a chance to hear him do something's coming at least twice since then. I've always thought uh, thought it one of the greatest show tunes ever written. It's it's so phenomenal in establishing that character, and he just is so perfect for Tony. Even though now he's um, you know uh, uh, chronologically considerably too old for it, but he's but he really doesn't look it. <laughs> he, uh, he he looks to me basically kind of the same as he looked in Newsies, uh, and that is of course another show for which he gained uh, a tremendous fan base but so something's coming was his first number then he did he did broadway here i come which is a joe iconis song from smash that was jeremy's song in that show and that has become a big fan favorite um he did she used to be mine from waitress uh in which he appeared he appeared during the run but she used to be mine uh, of course is a song in the show that's sung by the central female character. So it's uh, it's lovely to hear a man sing it. It it, it obviously uh, re- holds a different type of meaning when a man does it. Um, what else? Um, two Rodgers and Hammerstein um, selections. Jeremy did. Oh, what a beautiful morning in this beautiful pop arrangement that he did for this. A series called Rodgers and Hammerstein Go Pop. Uh, have you seen those videos, guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, he he did he did it as a video, but but here he performed it with with the New York with the New York Pops, and it was beautiful. And then he did um, this was kind of amazing. He did Soliloquy from Carousel, the whole thing, <laughs> and it was just great. And it is. I think it it adds so much um, to that character when he is played and sung by somebody who looks like basically a kid. Um, there's 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 so much about Billy Bigelow, Bigelow when you think about it that um, it kind of the character makes more sense and and maybe is even more sympathetic if he's if he looks like he's like you know, 19 or 20 and, uh, rather than a full grown adult, I, I think we, we can have more sympathy for him. So that, um, added to it greatly aside from the quality of the vocal performance, which was amazing. And then in act two, uh, the, the pops played, uh, um, LA Ms. Medley. And then Jeremy sang, bring him home in a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous, largely falsetto, voice that that beautiful half voice that's required for that number um then he did moving too fast from the last five years in which Mm -hmm. he in which he played the lead in the film version Mm -hmm. and uh he then he sang a song that he wrote uh he he (laughs) the pops let him uh do a song that he wrote a lovely song called undertow uh and then jeremy brought on his wife ashley spencer and they did two numbers from rock of ages because that's the show they met in um and i was not that that familiar with her, but I'm happy to report that she really was wonderful. She has a lovely voice, which is is nice because it. I guess it might have been a little embarrassing uh, if she was just kind of along for the ride and maybe not quite at at the level where she should be. But uh, I'm very happy to say that she, that she 
she was. Um, and then the uh, orchestra did an Alan Menken medley, and that led into uh, Jeremy the the uh, the the cleanup spot. The eleven o'clock member, I guess, was Santa Fe from Newsies. Um, well, you, you, one of which is was his his big breakout role, his big breakout role, and he just was the 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 embodiment of that character, Jack, and so great to hear him do it with a <laughs> eighty piece orchestra or whatever the size of that that orchestra is. It's just huge, uh, conducted by Stephen Reinecke, their musical director. Oh, and then the encore um, was pretty special it was a bunch of uh brief uh snippets from songs from several shows that this cup that uh jeremy and ashley would like to do together and it started with um uh a uh, song from ragtime uh oh, what is actually the title i'm sorry the one that that they sing on the beach at the end our children yeah oh yeah, yeah. our children yeah in our Atlantic children City. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. The the title just went out of my head. Um, and there were several other you know little snippets of shows they'd like to do together. And guess what the last song was? I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, the last song was suddenly Seymour. Ah. <laughs> okay. So Love little shop, <laughs> little shop is everywhere. Uh, did we, uh, parenthetically, I don't think we mentioned before. I and I think I just heard this. Yesterday, they're talking about a remake uh, of the film, uh, yeah. a new film yeah. Yeah. of Little Shop. Yeah. So yeah. there again, it, it, one one not, one cannot overestimate the the mm -hmm. beloved nature and and the, you know the the uh, the way that that has really penetrated the culture and and what that has done for musical theater. The real question is, if indeed there is a remake, will they use the ending that they originally shot and decided was too severe, with right. the plant taking over everything? Um, he does get electrocuted as, as he does in the uh, actual movie that we know. Right. But if there is a DVD outtake um, of it, um, so one wonders if they will now do that one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, you went from Jeremy Jordan over Carnegie Hall to a little bit to the Upper East Side to see Julie Andrews at 92nd Street Y. So tell us about that. Yes, last night, the, the 19th at the 92nd Street Y, Julie Andrews and her daughter, Emma Hamilton Walton, Emma Walton Hamilton, excuse me, <laughs> uh, appeared um, in conversation with Annette Instorf. And Julie is everywhere lately because the second volume of her autobiography has just been published, uh, which I certainly have to get my hands on. Um, and so she's making the rounds, and it's wonderful. But I, I, I should mention that both Julie and Emma were guests on our podcast. Um, and actually, uh, so was Jonathan Groff twice. So we have, you know, we just wanted to note, we have given you some pretty wonderful people <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> and it's all in the archives, folks, by the way. Um, have we spoke to Jeremy Jordan? Oh, um, I don't I think we think spoke so. to Jeremy Jordan, but I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah, everything's I'm in the archives. Sure. Go look through all of it. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 you know, I don't know if I ever mentioned this uh, and, or folks have um, 
explored, but the archives work really well as far as the search function. I, I, and I don't know if I ever said that to you, James, either. But you just go to Broadway Radio, uh, you know, and call up the the main page, and then there's the search box up in the upper right somewhere, I think, and just type in the name <laughs> of the person, and 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 it will come right up. So it's it's really kind of astounding the people we've spoken to. So I just wanted to throw that in there as a little plug for for this podcast. Oh, thank you. Yes, but um, it's always it's always such a privilege to to be in Julie Andrews' presence, and she and her daughter have such a wonderful, obviously great love for each other and a great working relationship. And um, one thing that was wonderful about this program in particular is that um, sometimes when when I have seen and heard Julie interviewed, uh, I have noticed she, she seems to have prepared responses to certain questions, which is perfectly understandable because there are certain things that I know she has been asked over and over and over again. And uh, so it's good to kind of have something prepared um, so you, uh, you know, to, to uh, for, for instances like that. But for this program, the, the interviewer was really quite wonderful. And at Insdorf, she asked um, s- Maybe things that we we have not heard asked multiple times before, and phrased the questions in a way that uh, it really seemed like Julie was very very relaxed, very happy to be there, and very spontaneous. Um, I, I didn't detect a false note in the, in the whole evening. Uh, she was so warm and so so giving and so wonderful. And they discussed uh, a wide range of topics in the limited amount of time, the, uh, the new book and, uh, the, uh, the, the books that, uh, that Emma has written with Julia. Well, Emma is credited as a co-author of, of this second volume of the auto bio, but then they also have written many children's books together. And of course, when we had them on the podcast, they were discussing Julie's green room, that TV series that, uh, that they had for a while, which, which they both worked on. And Julie was the, the hostess of it. Um, so there were another wonderful thing about this program at the Y was that um, this was the first time I had seen Julie interviewed in a, in the context of a show that featured clips from uh, several of her great movies. Uh, so that is a kind of amazing to be there, uh, you know, with a star of that stature, uh, a really a living legend, if if we may use that phrase, which is probably overused, but if it applies not to in anyone, this case, yeah. no, not in not in not in this case, um, and to be sitting there in 2019, you know, watching clips from Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music and and Victor Victoria and and to to hear her thoughts on them is is just extraordinary the uh the crowd was ecstatic to be there it was of course completely sold out um god only knows how many people uh, were not able to be accommodated oh and here's an interesting thing the um the audience was very very mixed uh in terms of demographics i'm i'm happy to say because uh, julie this career has spanned all of those all of those decades and still continues and do you know um um, do you know what project got the most response from the audience when it was mentioned? It's probably not the first thing you would think of. It's the Princess Diaries. 
Yeah. So there were a lot of young people there. And when that, they only mentioned it briefly. And uh, Julie talked about Anne Anne Hathaway and mentioned her briefly. And uh, there were a couple of other comments. But when that when that came up, and there was no clip shown from that, or but she talked about Julie talked about Gary Marshall who directed it and how they they came up with the character. And and again, in response to the mention of the Princess Diaries, the audience was like. "Ah!" So I thought that that was so interesting. Um, and of course, I'm sure that um, her fan, you know, people who maybe have discovered her, Julie Andrews first in The Princess Diaries, I imagine that since then they have gone on to see The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. And and uh, I hope they have also uh, had a chance to listen to her Broadway cast albums, which are so so beautiful from the era when those were done you know just so perfectly um anyway it was a i was privileged to be there at at the y last night and and do keep an eye out because as i said julie is everywhere uh because of the publication of this book and so i think she has other personal appearances coming up uh and if there's any way you can get in please do okay So that kind of wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, from Michael, and from me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to all of the things that we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah. Many a musical movie that has later become a stage musical on Broadway, of course, uses the movie's most famous songs in its overture. But what overture that's more than three minutes long has no songs from its famous film? And the answer is Gigi, which for its Broadway production in 1973, eschewed Thank Heavens for Little Girl, The Night They Invented Champagne, and the Oscar-winning song. Let me make an editorial comment here. This was one of the first, if not the first, movie-to-stage musicals. Back then, the creators wanted to show that it just wouldn't be business as usual and that they were going to offer something new. And that's why the overture showed uh, three of the five new songs. (laughs) Today, the creators want to show they're offering something old. Anyway... Tony Janicki, after a humiliating second-place finish last week, was back on top again, <clears throat> followed by Robert Berger, Brigadude, Donald Tessioni. So, this week's question. There's a film of a famous Broadway play that got a movie that starts with a panning of Duffy Square, and you see the Palace Theater, and playing at the Palace Theater is the musical Good Time Charlie. Well, what's the name of the movie? Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, let us know at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'll never know what made it so big